This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. This podcast is brought to you through support from our partner, the Kaliapea Foundation. The Kaliapea Foundation envisions a future grounded in compassion, respect, dignity, reverence for nature, and care for each other in the earth. To learn more, visit Kaliapea.org. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. We are not afraid. We are not afraid. We will live for the duration because we know why we are made. We are So there's, there's a dynamic in movements where we go to attack each other because that's an arena where we see where we can have impact. And because we have such a critical lens of being able to see what's problematic with everything, we can turn in on ourselves and develop a culture of a purity of politics where we build these circular firing squads and build an orientation where we kind of constantly push each other to say the perfect things. And if you can't say the, the perfect thing, then, then you, you, you're, you're, you become disposable. Today we are speaking with Joshua Kahn, BJ Starr, and Michael Strom from the Wildfire Project. The Wildfire Project strengthens movements for ecological, racial, and economic justice by supporting organizations to transform and spread a thriving culture, resilient in the face of changing terrain, grounded in history, vision, and strategy, connected to a North Star bigger than themselves, building across identity, and prepared to grow and win. We do this through deep facilitation using democratic, experiential methods, fusing political education and skills training with personal and group transformation and a curriculum tailored to specific needs of grassroots activism. Wildfire develops leaderships of frontline groups and maintains long-term support with the communities in which it works. So Wildfire emphasizes how movements can approach oncoming crises as opportunities for collective liberation. And to begin this conversation, I would love to really dive into this fully and explore some of the facets crises entails. So initially, I think of Naomi Klein's shock doctrine and how historically the powers that can be utilized in crises, both real and imagined, as a way to justify ideological agendas and policies that typically cut or, you know, privatize public services, you know, deregulate the market and even suspend constitutional protections. So, of course, we must remain vigilant of the kind of chaos that is contrived by the elite. 
But then simultaneously, we cannot allow ourselves or our movements to become paralyzed. And since Wildfire, I know, works with groups and individuals regularly, I'm really curious about what are some of the most you know, common self-limitations you see? Or maybe what problems are we immediately confronted with when we choose to work together? And then along the lines of limitation, I'm really specifically thinking of our aversion to both conflict and power. So if you could share on how Wildfire encourages groups to explore sites of tension and conflict. Yeah, I think you really, um, I think you really just nailed it on the point about it being mandatory for us to figure out how to come together more powerfully. It's really obvious that there are uh, a bunch of crises and collapse on the horizon and a bunch of crises that we're currently in. And I think we are, I think we're fundamentally rooted in the belief that we need to figure out how to be together differently and be together more powerfully with more compassion if we're going to, to weather those storms. And so to get to your point about the kind of self-limiting beliefs that come up, yeah, I think that any time that anyone, a group or an individual, moves toward uh, some kind of bold or visionary plan, anytime we do that, we encounter our self-limiting beliefs. We encounter stories about who we are that keep us small. And they can take a lot of different shapes. Uh, it could be, uh, I don't know how to do this. I'm not smart enough. I'm not brave enough. I can't handle how hard it's going to be. It could be, um, well, if we really talk about this, our organization is going to fall apart. Or uh, if I, you know, if I show vulnerability as a leader, then the group will lose trust in me. Anything like that. And you can you get a sense that someone is expressing a self-limiting belief uh, when the language is really always or never, right? When it's, it's just kind of uh, the way things are as opposed to uh, something that they can change or that they can, can work to transform. And so, yeah, I think conflict is really the big one that we face again and again. There's always some conversation that a group is maintaining collective silence around, but a conversation that needs to be had in order for the group to be relating to each other honestly and authentically. And so, I don't know, there's, there's so many examples. I think that one that comes to mind is we, we were recently working with a group that was trying to figure out how to address patriarchy and sexism as they were, were coming up in interactions with the members. And it was clear that there was a problem. And it was clear that everyone was, that everyone had the desire to fix the problem. All the words that people were saying were the right words, right? We're expressing a, a, a rooted commitment. Uh, but then when we decided to have a workshop where they had the opportunity to talk about what was going on and what needed to be done, there was just crickets and there was a really low energy and people seemed distracted or like they didn't know what to say. And ultimately, it took a lot of work to really come at the conversation from a whole bunch of different sides until finally strong emotion emerged and the strong emotion was anger and 
it became really clear in that moment that there was a lot of anger in the room. And the cost of not expressing the anger was that they weren't really relating to each other authentically and they weren't really dealing with what was at stake because the anger was showing the room that people were hurting, people in the room were actively hurting right now. And so the self-limiting belief that was under all of that is if I express my anger, the group is gonna fall apart. And once we were able to allow the anger into the room to let it get expressed and to show that the group did not fall apart, then we were able to really stay in the anger until we started to move towards some solutions. And uh, that I think is an example of a self-limiting belief. Mm -hmm. It makes yeah, me... Yeah, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, sorry, <laughs> go ahead. Oh, no, no, I just, it makes me think of, and I don't remember exactly the quote, but it's something like, in this dominant culture, we are conflict averse, but war prone, or, or like we're ready to go into war, but we don't wanna talk about conflict. And I think it's really fascinating to hear how afraid people are and scared to be able just to speak truth. And um, I know I, I've felt that time and time again um, in my own life. So yeah, it, it makes sense that this comes up. And, um, and I want to now speak a little more to the power element. So I'm thinking of an article I read by Wildfire's Yotam Moram, who reflects on the frequency in which we internalize deep shame about our origins or past mistakes, which then leads us to reject any sort of relationship or embodiment of power in our own circles. And Moram writes, quote, I internalize the message that the best thing I could do for the movement was to mitigate the damage I've done by existing, that my job was really just to disappear. There are historical reasons for this dilemma and current reasons that our movements have adopted these knee-jerk responses to what it perceives as power or privilege, end quote. So I wonder if any of you would be comfortable picking up on this conversation on the politics of powerlessness and who benefits from the negation of power. You know, do you see differences between responsibility and power? That's a good question, Ayana. A dear friend, Nia Coda, says that uh, with power comes responsibility, and with responsibility comes vulnerability. And when we shy away from our power, we're actually putting more responsibility on other people. And in many cases, putting more of a burden of different forms of labor onto other people within our groups, within our movement. And so the, what we protect ourselves from is the vulnerability that uh, moving into our power and wielding our privilege creates. It puts us in the conversation where our shortcomings, our politics will be questioned. It puts us in a place where our decisions will be challenged and we will have to take greater risks than we, went, than we would have had to had we chosen not to move into our power. And with those risks means sometimes we're going to make the wrong decisions, if you will, and perhaps regret them, perhaps hurt people, perhaps lose 
a campaign, perhaps lose funding, all kinds of things. And because we don't have the mechanisms built into our groups and into our community to handle that kind of disappointment, shame, mistake, harm, then we tend to avoid being in a position where we could cause it. So rather than take the risk, move into our power, and assume the responsibility and vulnerability that comes with that, we avoid and we project that power onto other folks. Well, they're, they're actually a lot smarter than I am, or that's our ED. They should be the one to put forward the proposal about our strategic plan, whatever it might be. We start looking for another person who should hold that responsibility. And it's part of our belief that a group being able to move into feedback, conflict, uh, greater like meta self-awareness with itself and one another and the individuals in it can actually rebuild those mechanisms that we need to handle when things don't go right. To, to be able to support the group as a whole in moving through what did not serve it so that people are less prone to being, um, I mean, really at the, at the extreme end of it, being discarded. Like, I think that's a huge fear is that we will, we're going to mess up. And like Michael said, this is going to break this group apart. Or I might make a huge mistake and I may not belong here anymore. Right? So we're, we're kind of building these, what I think of as like adaptogens <laughs> within a group that allow for it to expand in those moments that, um, challenge the perfectionism, challenge the reductive identity politics, and allow for us to really support each other, both in moving into our power and as a whole moving into the practices that are going to uplift, like allow us to evolve when we wield our power unskillfully. So much of what BJ is sharing just reminds me of why we focus in Wildfire on practicing and and just being in constant practice of new ways of being together because so much of the culture of activism has been shaped by a critical analysis we get really good at criticizing what's wrong with the world and there's so many examples of the ways that are, that power is wielded unaccountably that the ways that power is oppressive that power is embodied in a toxic masculine way that is power over and what we find is so many folks are often afraid of embodying that because that's the examples from society that we have to go on and we see it in our movements that we just orient around not being that, right? Not being oppressive. And then uh, as a result, the, the, the contraction that happens is shrinking and withering. And so much of the kind of generative examples that BJ just gave are our reflections of what we try to do is, is get folks to practice. What is it? What would it feel like to be stepping into our power, no matter what balance of identities we hold, no matter what access we have in a way that, that grows access and agency for ourselves and for the whole, for the group. And we really focus on trying to, to embody new ways of being that rather than focusing exclusively on identifying and breaking down all of the problematic ways we see it in, in society. Michael, do you have anything that you'd like to add to this? Uh, yeah. I think that 
one of the things I want to pull out of what BJ said and, and emphasize is how much this all makes sense. How much staying small is a smart strategy in certain ways. Given the way that power exists in our society and the ways we've come to understand power, staying small can totally keep us safe. And it's definitely easier to try and be right than it is to try and win. And I think it's important to acknowledge the ways that staying small has taken care of us. And a part of that is, like I said, just that we have so many bad examples and misunderstandings of what power looks like, that it can be hard to envision a power that is connected, that is related, that is accountable, that is interdependent. So we're not just asking people to, to become powerful in the way that you know, a politician or a CEO is powerful. We're asking people to learn a whole new way of being powerful. And that can be hard, but is ultimately necessary. And the, the thing we get from that is much greater than the thing that we get from staying small. I add one last thing to that, Ayanna. Every body, physical body, has a different sensation or reaction to that word or even the idea of moving into their power. Um, whether it be the idea of speaking out, for example, dependent on that individual's life experience or maybe even their family's experience, their culture's experience, maybe their ancestors' experience, that body might feel a very real, deep, visceral fear of like death, perhaps, you know, at the most extreme, because we have lots of lived experience of the treatment of folks who moved into their power of what happened to them as a result of uh, speaking out, if we keep using that as an example, be it to be silenced through uh, state-sanctioned violence, to be incarcerated, to be assassinated, to be uh, targeted in the media, to have their family targeted, all kinds of things have happened to us that are very real risks of being as powerful as we believe we need to be. And working through that isn't just a matter of choice. It's not as easy as just saying, you know what? I'm sick of thinking that way. I'm gonna go for it. There's real healing that has to also happen there and space that we have to create for that healing. And so um, while there's like the, the politic of powerlessness, there's also the very real demand that we have for tools and techniques that are going to help us transform what has caused our powerlessness. And that's something that we're continuing to really explore and deepen in our work, primarily right now through conflict, but also in some of the practices that we've been drawing from. Mm-hmm. Yes, I really agree, BJ, that again, like it it just comes, this word mandatory keeps coming up. These things aren't something that we can skip and think that we can get to the finish line. You know, we can't just wash all this human, interpersonal human dimensions and human conditioning under the rug and expect to be able to be long-term, efficient, um, effective, impactful activist or 
people of service, even even people with good relationships with each other, you know, our families, our friends, our coworkers. So it this conversation is so ripe and also this the way you all have discussed power is really fascinating because I think at first when I thought about power I was thinking of um, like taking the power, like kind of this idea of leadership where I love how you are all explaining it because yes, power can mean leadership, but power can mean vulnerability. Power is truth. Power is all of these different factors. And by stepping into our power, we're actually, you know, in a, in a healthy way, in a way that's balanced with integrity, creates better relationships. And I think that is just a narrative that many of us are completely not taught that stepping into our power is actually beneficial for those around us. I feel like that's, that's not the common way of understanding it. And um, so I really appreciate that. And there's, there's so much other analysis that I've been doing while you've all of you've been speaking, but um, I want to get into this next question that I think about so often, especially with the Trump administration and really this this very divided country with uh, you know the left and the right but one thing i will say about the right is there seems to be a, a stronger unification and in that unification there is power or impact or you know whatever word we we'd want to use but it just also seems that more and more often the leftist com- movements and community they just you know, seem to continue to alienate themselves from the public, both by choice as well as in their treatment of those who not uh, don't align directly with their values. And I know this is a you know generalization alert, but I'd like to kind of talk about it overarchingly. And I'd love if you all or whoever would like to speak to this can share a little bit more about the toxic movement culture, and then what infrastructure is missing in many of today's movements to move out of the toxicity. Yeah, there's there's so many angles for this. Maybe I'll kick it off, and and BJ and Michael, you can you can build one one direction that 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 sends my mind in is thinking about power in a structural way, which is one one common experience I think among among activist subcultures that is an element of what we call toxic movement culture is the desire to signal your alienation from society rather than take responsibility to lead society. And when you're, when the left is in a structural position where we don't have collective power, and in this case, I, I use that term in the sense of governance, in the sense of, of directing systems and of distribution of resources and, and people feeling a sense of agency over the control of their lives. When, when you don't feel that sense of power, you want to express your discontent in in some arena where you might have an impact. So what I mean is that, let's say that you're feeling um, in some kind of existential despair around climate change, and you look to uh, Exxon and see the way that Exxon and, and the oil oligarchs are ethnically cleansing indigenous communities, are are destroying the environment, and you know. Um, or human family to uh, for oil exploration. Well, if you don't feel like you have any leverage or sense of power to, let's say, punch the CEO of Exxon, uh, maybe, maybe you, you don't have access to that arena, but you can at least punch the person next to you in the meeting for only agreeing with you 99% of the time <laughs> instead of 100% of the time. And 
So there's, there's a dynamic in movements where we go to attack each other because that's an arena where we see where we can have impact. And because we have such a critical lens of being able to see what's problematic with everything, we can turn in on ourselves and develop a culture of a purity of politics where we build these circular firing squads and build an orientation where we kind of constantly push each other to say the perfect things. And if you can't say the, the perfect thing, then, then you, you, you're, you're, you become disposable. And so I think a lot of these elements of toxic movement culture that we talk about, whether that is related to the reductive politics around identity, whether it's, it's related to burnout or call-out culture, um, a lot of that is related to a sense of efficacy, that, that if our movements aren't picking strategies that are, you know, to a scale that's commensurate with the crisis, then, then we look to where we actually can feel the impact of our actions. And that is a reflection of how our movements engage in conflict with one another. You know, you pointed this out earlier, Ayana, when um, uh, BJ and Michael were describing our movement's aversion to conflict, where we, we get afraid to engage in generative conflict. And the other side of that coin is that um, while in one sense we are deeply conflict-averse as social movements, or at least some, some sectors are, in other ways, we engage in really unproductive kind of conflict on the sidelines that we learn from a sort of combative stance that comes from campaigning um, and from uh, waging campaigns against a target. And then we look at each other like targets rather than looking at each other as we've all been damaged by this culture. We've all been damaged by capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy, colonialism, and we're in a process of healing together. And that the the reason why we build movements is both to shift society but to also heal as we do it so i'll i'll pause there and see if bj and, or michael want to want to build on that because there's there's a lot of dimensions we could take <laughs> take it from yeah another thing i'd like to bring into into the that conversation is the general context in what is our responsibility and what isn't our responsibility because the right is using, you know, the language and images of patriotism and Christianity uh, and these, these kind of like widely accepted, uh, deeply held symbols in American culture that have a lot of traction. And on the left, we're, you know, fighting for some things that are very contrary or can be very contrary to the way things have been functioning in the United States for a long time. And the sexism, racism, homophobia, ableism, transphobia, classism, et cetera, of our society at large is a real barrier. And that part isn't our fault. That disadvantage isn't a thing for us to take responsibility for. But it is on us to take responsibility for what is within our control and for speaking through and across those differences in a way that really changes the narrative and to create our own narrative that is equally compelling and to really ground into relating to people and recognizing the, the kind of currency of a relationship and building our movements. And so I think it's important just to always keep that in mind when we're having this discussion. And then another thing that I wanted to bring in is a tendency to 
to not have any gray area, to not allow things to be complex. And I think this is at the root of so many of the problems that emerge in our movement culture is that something needs to be entirely bad or entirely good or entirely oppressive or entirely liberatory. And a lot of the work that we do is to help people see with good eyes and really see each other as whole and complex and growing and evolving together. And so I can think of uh, one example in a, in a workshop that we did recently where we, there was a tension around, on one hand, the group thought of itself as a space where we can bring our whole selves, we can hold each other in our wholeness. But then they were facing the reality of, but we can't hold everything, right? There's actually limits to what we can take on. And we invited them into a conversation of what can I hold? And what can't I hold? What can I bring to the group? And what should I work through on my own? And the place where the lesson really sunk in and really hit was when they started to think about how they would convey this tension to their base and that they were gonna have to ask their base to understand that they were growing that they were entering into a question that they didn't have an answer to. And when they realized that they had to ask that, they realized that they had to model being complex and unfinished. That there was actually a problem that they were taking on that they weren't gonna find a clear answer to and a clear answer might not actually exist. And so when they sat in that and were like, oh, we're gonna have to model to all of our membership what it means to be figuring things out, that ended up creating a whole bunch of ease because they didn't have to be entirely right or entirely wrong. And they didn't have to get this question right the first time. And I think spaces like that, where we're inviting people to be in that complexity, end up softening all different difficult parts of movement culture.
you all said so many really profound things. I'm still remembering Joshua when you mentioned this um, this thing that happens, which I know has happened to me before too. It's like you can't punch the Exxon Mobil CEO, but you can look to the person next to you who might even be a comrade or a friend or a lover and take it out on them because it's where you may have power or access to releasing those feelings. And it's it's all kind of making more sense to me how this toxic culture within people who care so much um, can arise because of these dimensions and that we aren't conditioned to know how to communicate, how to be vulnerable, how to stand in our power. These aren't, this isn't what we're learning in school or and most of the time, or I don't know if most of the time, but I would imagine even in our family systems for a lot of us. And I know we have talked to some of this, but I want to get a little more detailed on this topic and explore the dynamics and the peril of this call-out culture and why we need to seriously reorient ourselves to calling one another in. You know, I'm wondering, why do you think we are seeing a resurgence in this mentality of constant attack? And like, this is maybe what you kind of spoke some to, but, you know, as well as this expectation of perfection. And I'm wondering, isn't there value in challenging ourselves to be a part of what is not perfect? But the other part I want to speak to and, you, and I know you all have been speaking to the complexity in the gray area is, in one hand, I see the damage that call-out culture can have. On the other hand, I also see that there are times that people do need to get called out. And how you all balance that in a way that's healthy and regenerative, I'd really love to hear. What a good question. Um, I'm thinking of a recent group that I was working with um, and we were focusing quite a bit on microaggressions. A lot of research lately, it's been over some time now over the last decade, has shown that microaggressions have a more long-term detrimental psychological impact than the more extreme uh, cases of very overt aggressions that the like small doses daily affect us even, even more. So we were focusing on microaggressions because that's often a thing that people get called out for. And um, one of the ways that we tend to respond to it is to name it and shame it, basically. Um, you did the wrong thing, you shouldn't have done that, you should know better or you're terrible because dot, 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 or you're racist because dot, 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 or you're insensitive or whatever it might be. As Joshua named, we're, we're trained so well to be able to see it and name it, a lot of us. However, when it comes to engaging it or educating or interrupting it, we have a lot less practice. And because we don't have that practice, it's not, it's not a deeply ingrained thing in us. It's not a, a natural response that we're going to go to. There's risk there. We could do it wrong. Uh, and especially if we engage, which means we, we're going to draw someone into a question, ask them more of why they think that way, or, or perhaps educate them and share a little bit more about why 
some of their behaviors are problematic or start to bring their attention to it, we actually put ourselves in a more vulnerable situation once again. When we can call something out and point a finger across the table, then the attention is no longer on us. But when we engage and we draw in ourselves into a conversation, then what may also come into the light is our own assumptions, our own shortcomings, our own problematic behaviors as well. Uh, oftentimes, the closer we get to someone in a like compassionate way, the more we can see ourselves. And the truth is that the line that divides like what is good and bad, if you will, or what we see as like uh, liberatory or oppressive runs through every single one of us. It doesn't divide us. It runs through every single one of us. And we all at some point have, I don't know, we're susceptible. We're conditioned in a way where we're likely to reproduce some of the same problems that we're trying to fight against. So it's, it's absolutely necessary for us to be practicing new skills, uh, particularly around feedback, so that we have, um, we have the idea of like, how might we transform this versus how might we just identify this? Like you said, we're, we're conflict averse, but war prone. So we're, we are quicker to um, attack than to um, invite someone into a conversation. So that's what we're really trying to look at when some of our groups is how do, what are some of the practices? How can we allow ourselves to even experiment when there's so much at stake, right? Like when we know that this thing needs to end 20 years ago and we're still dealing with it, how do we approach that conversation with humility, with compassion, and with enough honesty and truth that we have the potential to transform it. it it's useful also when the, the term call out culture or the term calling out, it can mean so many different things. And I, I, it also feels worth clarifying that within wildfire, what we're talking about is within groups, among comrades, among people who there's a relational container to support each other to be and do better, uh, which is different than, it, it, to me, it's a totally different conversation around, you know, publicly calling out a celebrity <laughs> or, or the national conversation around like the MAGA hat wearing kids uh, that just happened last week or where, where the goals of, of some of that, quote, calling out are really about drawing attention to a behavior to, to, to say that that's not okay, right? That's terrain that we don't really work in in wildfire. Uh, the arenas that we work in are within groups and within social movements among peers who um, share a liberatory goal, where it's worth it to invest in each other, where we have a kind of relational container to want to teach each other and support each other to grow. And so it, it felt useful to make that distinction as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate that, Joshua. Um, because there is, a, there is a large difference between, between those two realms. And I'm sure there's even other realms that we have yet to discuss. But I want to now 
switch this topic to this word Anthropocene and I've been seeing it used more and more and I want to actually talk about the idea of letting go of the Anthropocene or the old world because the Anthropocene is characterized by chaos, change, and uncertainty. It's it's a result of our own actions that have generated this climate change, mass extinction, pollution, elite authoritarianism, and kind of a sort of perverse resilience. So I'm curious about each of your relationship to this concept or this term Anthropocene. And do you think the more we seek to understand this age of man, as they're calling it, and recognize it as our own, perhaps the longer it will prevail because we're putting so much energy into it? Whew, yeah, I, I'll kick it off, which is, <laughs> um, well, if I understand your question correctly, Ayana, so please, please course correct me if I'm not going in, in the direction <laughs> that, that you're bringing us in. But when, when we look out into the world right now, we see a landscape where all of the natural living systems uh, that support life on this planet are in free fall or collapse. And that's putting pressure on our social, political, and economic systems um, in such a way where um, our orientation towards resiliency is the, is the politics of collapse and rebirth and, and regenerative cycles. And we've seen so many social movements, uh, sectors, uh, begin to move towards a holistic ecological analysis uh, and, and towards spirits to understand the scale of the changes that are coming. Uh, which is quite different than movements before us, which primarily use the tools of um, ideology or, you know, materialist Marxist frameworks to think primarily about how do we transform human systems of governance. And so, so for us, our orientation is, is that the, the earth is going to bring us back into right relationship with her one way or another. <laughs> and when, when we talk about resiliency, we think about the role of social movements to be navigating this period of constant collapse and rebirth. And I don't know exactly what that means in terms of leaving behind the concept of the Anthropocene, other than the, than, than the sense that, you know, right now uh, we support in wildfire a number of grassroots movement organizations for whom... Um, everything feels under attack by the Trump administration and everything feels on fire. And we're looking at how can we transform the existing systems in our society of governance so that we can navigate them better. Meaning, for example, you know, who the president is has a material impact when the next hurricane hits. You know, a president Trump uh, versus you know, President Sanders, when, when the hurricane hits Puerto Rico, there's a, there's a huge material difference. And yet at the same time, there is the longer view of, of um, that this, this civilization does have a timeline and, <laughs> and it's coming to an end where we, we are in, in a great turning and at the end of an era. And, you know, leftists for a long time have been predicting that capitalism is going to collapse under the weight of its own contradictions. Um, and I believe that we are, we are in the generation where that's finally going to, to happen, where the real superstructure of our economy is, of course, ecology. And, you know, the latest UN report uh, estimates a timeline for that that's quite fast. 
And so we're thinking about what, in that context, what is the role of social movements when the terrain under our feet itself is shifting? So I'm curious, Ayanna, if that kind of gets in the direction of what you're talking about, or, or if the question was more pointed around the term Anthropocene in particular. No, I, I loved where you took it. I think it's it's a kind of a strange question because in one way, I think, or, or whether we're putting energy into certain let's just say the Anthropocene, like part of me says whether we're putting energy into it or not is happening. But then the other part of me thinks about how we are moving through this crisis. And and I know, Joshua, you've previously spoken about the difference between organizing to stop the climate crisis versus navigating through it, with the former being impossible, but the latter full of opportunity. So I think about this with the term Anthropocene because it's something that I think a lot about, but I wonder, does it kind of uh, paralyze us? Or, you know, I think about um, conversations I've had with other guests and this idea of identifying with, whether it's the oppressor or identifying with the oppressor system and how that can entangle us within it rather than allowing us to potentially move through it. And it's something that I don't feel like I really, and maybe this is a gray area thing again, and maybe it's really embodying the dichotomy of it all, and it's not this or that, but instead it's a mixture of all of it. But um, I would be interested to hear more about what this shift entails in terms of, rather than trying to stop, but instead navigate through, you know, what sort of planning is necessary for a just transition away from this system of oppression and climate crisis and into another system that is full of opportunity that that is um, not it's of course it's challenging but potentially it can yeah it can just open us up to so much more I think I'm um probably stretching my imagination a bit more than my wisdom as I answer this question. But um, when I think about what it takes for transformation to really happen, like the, I, I'll think about myself as an example, I can think about other groups as well. There is some amount of pain or loss or perhaps a rite of passage that has happened that has brought me to a point where nothing can ever be the same again. And with that tremendous pain uh, that catapults me into whatever next stage of my own evolutionary development is, being able to either I'm forced beyond my choice uh, because of life circumstances, or I have some choice, but I have a lot of assistance in that uh, sort of rite of passage. I can think about moments in my life that really transformed me were when I lost my home, when I lost my father, when I was became a teenager and was no longer supported by a public school. And I had to like figure life out after that. It was like these moments came and I was suddenly forced to, I I was initiated and forced into this next chapter. And in groups, there are also moments when what previously the shape that they 
held, the structure that supported them no longer serves them and must be shed, or else that group will not be as effective anymore. We're beyond that point as human beings, but it still doesn't change what it takes for us to truly transform. And I think that uh, whether we are attached to that concept of the Anthropocene or not, to make a true transition means we've got to make a just transformation. And that is likely going to be through pain, through loss, through chaos and destruction that forces people into a completely new way of being because they have no way of accessing what existed before collapse of the financial system, a new, uh, uh, our next recession or things like this that affect our material lives in ways that force us to respond differently. Or we have a lot of assistance and we are a part of groups that are working hard to make that transition, who are doing the work to create those compelling visions, to create new governing systems and to expand their sense of self to be working in collaboration with spirit, with land, with all the non-human beings that also inhabit this place in order to find the way through, in order to find what right relationship does exist so that they may navigate through it rather than try and stop it. And we don't know what that looks like. And we can say just by looking around the world and seeing the infinite number of cultures and ways that people have survived, that there will not be one way, there will not be a handful of ways, but it will depend upon kind of micro circumstances, what kind of governance uh, and what kind of worldview and what kind of actual systems and cultures and practices allow people to navigate through it. And those are going to come about through groups and their place and uh, the resources or circumstances that they're within. Their particular context are gonna shape so much of that. And that's where we then kind of move from the Anthropocene where it's really about the human influence and see that this next era will be determined greatly by the forces of our planet. Wake up warriors, the sun's risen. Now is the time to live. Wake up, warriors, the sun's risen, now is the time to live in our vision, wake up. Now close your eyes, sing it to your people. Wake up, warriors, the sun's risen, now is the time to live in our vision, wake up, warriors, wake up, warriors. So for my last question, although I really wish it wasn't, I wish we had many hours to continue diving in together, but I'm thinking of this term and I may totally mispronounce it, but I think it's something like solastasia or solastasia. And it's a term coined by Glenn Albrecht, which he defined as, quote, the pain 
melancholia or distress caused by the loss or lack of solace and the sense of desolation connected to the present state of one's home and territory. It is the lived experience of negative environmental change, the homesickness you have when you are still at home, end quote. And I think many of us, if not all of us, can relate to this sentiment, especially those of us who are so deeply aware of the current transition that is occurring and the profound loss and and trauma that it entails. And while we must, of course, honor these truths, we also cannot allow ourselves to become overwhelmed with the pain. So as movement facilitators, how do you wade through these heavy realities while still retaining joy? And I guess the other question is, is, how do we operate in these spaces of contradiction and really uh, move into our day-to-day lives without getting stuck? In the last week, Ayana, my phone has rang maybe six or seven times with folks that I have either recently been in touch with or haven't heard from in a very long time, reaching out to ask, how can they create their own grief ritual to deal with what's happening on a daily basis at home. It was like this not so subtle, but pretty quiet, constant shift towards losing everything I love. And um, there's both the kind of anticipatory kind of anxiety or kind of premature grief, I would say, that comes along with seeing the way that things are changing and knowing, not knowing what will be lost, but knowing there will be significant loss. And then there is the um, turning the corner in your own neighborhood and seeing the gentrification that has displaced many people that you love and no longer know where they even live or the magical place that you visited often as a child and through your teens and now as an adult come to find is clear cut. The places that we, that we love that like we are so intimate with Francis Weller names as the first gateway of grief being everything that we love, we will lose. Guaranteed, no no exception, including our own life. And it's our belief that uh, that's not something we can stop, right? Like there are ways that we can um, slow down a lot of the devastation that's happening. There's ways that we can work toward policies that are going to shift the way that gentrification is happening. But this change in loss is going to be a part of our lives. And increasingly so with the climate change and chaos that we're already experiencing. And so we have to honor the parts of ourselves that are experiencing that grief, that absolute fear, rage, shock, numbness, all of that, or else it, we start to compartmentalize ourselves and show up as less of ourselves. So coming back to the conversation about power, we cannot be powerful in times of great loss if we cannot 
honor the pain and the grief and the feelings that come along with that loss is impossible. And the joy that we want to be able to experience, that's also like experienced in this sense of fluidity and this sense of being like this feeling of adaptation, that's also on the other side of releasing those feelings. So they're kind, they kind of come hand in hand, even though it seems like we should, let's move toward our joy. I know there's someone in my life who, um, that's a big part of their work is helping people pursue their joy, like move that and away from the things that bring us weight, bring us um, more of the like harder, heavier emotions. However, what we experience in working with groups is that if we don't move toward, if we allow that silence to exist, where we just keep trying to move toward the new strategy or towards that compelling vision and we leave out the part where we have to go into the pain, into the conflict, then we're not bringing our whole selves along with us. So there's so much to be explored and, and developed in our lives to create containers and space for us to really honor what's happening on the day-to-day -day basis. And what we're doing right now is exploring how we can at least do that on like a regularly occurring basis to allow folks to like really tend to the parts of ourselves that are hurt and broken by what we're experiencing at home, home being wherever we are. Thank you for listening to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayanna Young. The music you heard today was from Peace Poets and a Wildfire Workshop. I'd like to thank our podcast production team, our co-producer and editor, Andrew Stores, our co-producer and writer, Francesca Glassbell, communications director, Aaron Wise, music coordinator, Carter Lou McElroy, and co-managing directors, Mara Joy and Melanie Younger. Please rate us on iTunes if you haven't already and sign up for our newsletter at forthewild.world and find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks so much and until next time. I've been too long away from this wild open sky on the country trails and wine.